Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Good morning. Did you guys appreciate uh, Nick's sermon last week closing out the book of James for us? All right, when you see him, you tell him, all right? Thank him for his preaching. Uh, okay, this is a bit longer than normal. This is like a 1.4 1, 1. Andrew sermons. Um, if you prefer the metric system, that's one mic sermon. That's worked at both services so far. If you're new, stick around. You'll see what I mean. Open your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians 1. We're going to read the first 10 verses together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens to my right and left. If you don't have a Bible at all, we'll get you one. Let us know. So beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen? Well, we've prayed a few times already this morning. That's good, right? I've probably said this before. I worry... uh, that I'll get to the end and I'll get to see a list of the top things I prayed for. You guys ever worried that like a parking spot will be way too high on that list? I think about uh, the sort of things I pray for. I pray for my family. I pray for our finances. I pray for the household that we're in. I pray for people when they are sick or my family when they're sick. I pray that the Lord would restore the Wi-Fi in my house. I pray for all kinds of different things. And I think it's good to lift up every request we have to God in prayer. I don't think that anything that draws our attention of concern is is beneath what God desires us to bring before him. Is that true? So you should know, I think you can pray small prayers. I think you're, you're allowed to do that. However, the model of prayer we have in the New Testament modeled here is a very big, sweeping, global, magnificent uh, model of prayer. Paul, Paul opens... The first uh, ten ver- with the first ten verses of, of 1 Thessalonians, he, he opens this, this book with a prayer, a, a really deep 
and rich and big prayer. He's praying, thanking God for what God has done amongst the Thessalonians. And so it becomes a model of prayer for us when we think about our prayer lives. I don't want you to hear that you can't pray for small things. I do want us to practice praying for big things, things that honor the Lord, things that glorify the Lord on a regular basis. Paul's writing to uh, this city, Thessalonica, this church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a city that had allied itself with the right generals at the right time and had become relatively wealthy and important, the capital of the region that it sits in. By the time Paul's writing, it probably has about 100,000 people uh, that are populating the city. It's on an important trade route. It's got a port. It's a significant city, and there's a significant population there. And Paul has gone into this city during his missionary travels. He's preached the gospel. And when he's there, people convert to Christianity. People come to believe in Jesus. And what's great about the New Testament is as we read Paul's letters, you can kind of slot them in to various places in the book of Acts, which provides for us the narrative of Paul's life. We can actually read the account of Paul going to Thessalonica here in, in Acts 17. We read, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have <laughs> turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying... That there is another king. Who? And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Paul goes into Thessalonica and he preaches and the Lord honors his preaching. And the Lord grants faith and repentance to some of those uh, who were in Thessalonica. And then Paul's ministry there is brought to an abrupt end. We read in the next few verses in Acts 17 that Paul and his cohort, his ministry partners, they leave the city... They no longer continue their instruction of the Thessalonians there. What's cool about 1 Thessalonians is it's probably the earliest book in the New Testament. Meaning there probably wasn't a book about Christianity that we have written before 1 Thessalonians. Maybe just like 7 to 12 years after the resurrection of Jesus. What's also great about the book of Thessalonians is God and his, his, his sovereign goodness drew Paul away from the Thessalonians such that he had to continue basic instruction for them. He writes them a letter with some basics of Christianity, some, some very, very fundamental truths because he was not able to finish basic instruction before he left. And now we are the beneficiaries. We receive his letter to the Thessalonians with some basic instruction. He's probably writing uh, for four main reasons. One is people, after Paul left, had been talking some trash about Paul. You guys ever had anyone talk trash about you? No one? What a charm, what a charm life you guys all live. Okay, cool. Well, it might happen one day. You just need to be prepared when it does. 
Paul's going to address some of the things people have been saying about him. They've been saying, hey, listen, this guy came in. He preached some good news, but really what he wanted was your money. He wanted a little bit of fame. He was using you, and Paul's going to begin to address some of those things. He's preaching, uh, or he's teaching them in this letter to endure suffering and persecution. How do you continue in the faith when your life, either because of persecution or suffering, is not going the way that you want? He's going to encourage them and exhort them to continue in faithful Christian living. Do you want to continue in faithful Christian living? Do you, do you, they're all, they're all real questions. Do you want to continue in faithful Christian living? Okay, amen. And lastly, he's going to instruct them a little bit about what it means for Jesus to return and what they should expect in terms of Jesus' return. He begins with a prayer of thanksgiving. He explains what he is thankful for. I think we learn a number of things. Uh, the first is this. Paul is thankful for their, that is the Thessalonians, new and favorable position. New and favorable position. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again one more time. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. My letters normally begin like, Dear Nathan. <laughs> it's actually pretty easy, I think, for us to skip over what I really believe is one of the most profound things that Paul says in this letter. He begins by saying that they are in Thessalonica. They have a specific location and place. It's like 45 AD. They're living in Macedonia. They're people who are living and breathing and living out their lives contextually in that city. So he says, to the church in Thessalonica, but also in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which if you are a believer and you're a member of this church, you are here in Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach in, what is it, 2022, unbelievably, surrounded by the South Bay cities, but you are also in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just like one word here, in. I'm going to try and squeeze it for all that it's worth real quickly. Let me teach you a little bit of Greek. The word for in in Greek is in. You guys remember that? And that word in uh, can mean more than one thing. It can mean uh, in, like inside. It can mean uh, with. It can mean by. And in this case, I think Paul's using it in at least two senses. In one sense, he's saying that they are in the sphere or the domain or the kingdom of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think he's also probably saying that they are uh, by. They are by uh, in terms of like means or instrument, God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord God has taken people and brought them into the sphere of being in the divine realm, in the kingdom of God. Here's why this is important. Our association with the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, is close. I know that might sound trite to some of you, but I want to try and uh, illustrate it. Uh, have you ever been to another country? How many of you have ever been to another country? So if you're an American citizen, you go to another country, it is really important that you represent the president well, right? <laughs> Do you guys don't think that? You go on a vacation somewhere and you're like, okay, I gotta make sure that I represent the president well. And if this uh, illustration works best for you, just imagine whichever president you like the best. I don't care which one it is. <laughs> like, like Trump, Biden, Lincoln, if you're a weird Grover Cleveland friend, fi fine, it's, it's, it's fine, <laughs> whoever you want, whoever you want. 
like you imagine we're in a group, and have you ever said something in a group, and immediately you're like, ooh, I shouldn't have said that, and everyone's silent? <laughs> imagine I do that, and in the silence, I'm like, oh, man, I just let the president down. <laughs> like, I'm an American citizen. I don't have my password to prove it, but I am. And I have all the rights of American citizenship. If you were to ask me what nation I belong to, I would say, oh, I'm an American. I've basically always lived in America. I have my American passport. I have a specific executive office manager, the, the president of the United States. You're like, well, how, what do you know about him? Not much. How important are you to him? Not at all. How much do your actions reflect on him? Essentially none. And I think what, what Paul is saying here is that our association with God is great and it's close and it's intimate. And that's a unique feature of Christianity. Like we believe that the Lord who spoke everything into existence, who like said exist to like nebulas and, and stars and galaxies, uh, that that Lord is our close companion. That is a profound truth of Christianity. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. We hear God say, be content with such things as you have, for I will never what? Leave you or forsake you. Jesus says to the disciples before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, go out, make disciples, baptize them, teach you. Surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. The distance between me and the president feels great, but it's really not that great in comparison of wisdom and power to the difference between me and the Lord of the universe, yet the Lord of the universe is more closely associated with me than the president. Like Paul's saying to them, God is with you. He is actually with you. You are with God. Here's some passages in, in the Bible that say things like this. Paul says this in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's a close association. Here's Colossians. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Since in which we are identified with God, we are associated with God, we're in the sphere of God. And also our destinies, if we have called on the name of Jesus, are tied up in his destiny. Christ will be glorified, and in a certain sense, we will be glorified. That is a powerful truth, especially for those of you here who are wondering, how is it possible that God could care about me? The president does not know your name. God knows your name. He knows your name. He knows your desires. He knows your struggles. He knows the things that cause you pain. He knows all of them. He cares about them, and he is with you. Amen? Paul goes on to remember and thank some of the things that are true about the Thessalonians, part of their new and favorable position in the sphere or in the kingdom of God. He talks about their work of faith, their work of faith. I want to pause here for a moment because one of the most confusing things about Christianity for those who are on the outside is they assume Christians believe you do good, you go to heaven, and you do bad, and you go where? Yeah, right? You're on the outside. A lot of people think that. And they think, like, yeah, I just got to do good and I'll get to heaven. I don't want to do too many bad things so that I end up in hell. Uh, Christianity does not teach that. Christianity does not teach what we call a works-based faith. Maybe some of you guys grew up in churches that kind of accidentally maybe were sort of moralistic churches. You were taught to live a certain way and anticipate being admitted into heaven because you had done good things and avoided bad things. But that really is not 
what the Bible teaches. If you're new, if you're like kind of sort of interested in church, you've been around for a little while and you're wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? I want you to listen. You will never, ever be acceptable to God on your own merits, on your own works. Here's what Paul says about how we're saved in Ephesians. And I just want to pause you for a second because I know that you feel like, oh, we talk about the gospel every week. Good. <laughs> Good. I'm glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad that's the case. Like, what did I learn? I learned a lot about parenting. Cool, I'm glad you learned parenting. How are you saved? Uh, repetition is good. I want to show you how much Paul repeats himself here. This is kind of borne out to me just because I was reading this passage. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That makes sense to us, right? Grace being the unmerited favor of God. That is, God in his kindness and mercy gives something to us. We've been saved through faith. Faith being trust in God. You trust in God because he has freely given you something. That is salvation. And that would be enough for Paul to make his argument. That would be sufficient. If he just had that sentence, he'd be like, yeah, I get it. He's like, no, no, but listen. <laughs> he goes, and, just in case you didn't get in the first sentence, this is not your own doing. You're like, okay, Paul, I get it. We're good. And he goes, and, just in case the first two sentences didn't get it for you, it is the gift of God. You're like, I get it, I understand. All of this is sufficient to make his argument. He continues, not a result of works. You're like, okay, <laughs> so that no one may boast. Like, five times in that sentence, Paul is essentially asserting the same thing. Salvation is the result of God's action, not ours. This is like one of the, the, the most, maybe not one of, the most important bedrock of Christian belief. If you're here and you thought, got to do good works so I can get into heaven, I want to assure you that that will not save you. Paul's telling you here, you can't earn it. It can only be given to you. It's not achieved, it's received. What is Paul talking about here then when he says works of faith? I think Paul is talking about the less famous sort of works verse that comes right after this one in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. On the one hand, Christianity is not about doing good works. It's not a reformation, it is a transformation. However, if you've been changed, your life will necessarily show it. Not always in a straight line, not every single day. You will certainly continue to commit sins. Some of us will commit egregious sins after we are saved. But the through line, the direction, is that we become more like Christ as we live out our lives in Christ. I don't want to assure you that you are saved if you are living in unrepentant, egregious, regular sin. In fact, I want to explain to you that if that is the content of your life, exercise some healthy caution. Consider the warnings of Scripture. Cling to the cross of Christ. He continues, your work of faith, and he says, your labor of Love, your labor of love. Is love ever laborious? Here's a uh, define laborious. Is, uh, is love ever hard? Okay, husbands, don't say that too loudly. <laughs> Wives, don't say that too loudly. Love is not really a feeling. Like, it's, it is a feeling, right? Like, I want you guys, like, do you, do you love your kids? <laughs> it's Father's Day, guys. Do you, do you love your kids? 
Yeah, right? You feel love for your kids? Sometimes. You're like, uh, after I've had my coffee in the morning, I feel a lot of love. But like 30 minutes before bedtime, not feeling it quite as much. Yeah, love is a feeling, but it's more than that. The substance of love, the, the meat of love, is not really a feeling. It is, it's action, right? I can tell my wife I love her all day long, but if I don't ever express that through my actions, I'm probably just lying. So husbands, tell your wives that you love them every day, right? But also, be a sort of husband that does things that, that shows your wife that you love her. The reverse is true as well, but I just want to pick on husbands a little bit. It's Father's Day, lighthearted, I want to go for it. Uh, the, the manifestation of love through actions is exemplified in Scripture. That is, the supreme example of loving through actions is God himself. We see this in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, how did God love us? I will specifically tell you how God loved us. I can point at it. I can point to the cross and say, look, that's an example of how God loved us. It's not that God felt a great deal of emotion towards us. He didn't like change his Facebook banner to explain that he loves us and get likes on it. God did a thing sacrificially that cost him something to express his love for his people. So true love in a church becomes a powerful tool for unity. Anybody here have any conflict with anyone else? People are afraid to raise their hands? Yeah. Who is the person you least want to love right now? This would be like a name popped in your head. You're like, oh! <laughs> love costs something. It's a labor of love. I think Paul is saying to Thessalonians, listen, the pressure is on. He's going to talk about some persecution a little bit. The pressure is on. Things are not going well. Conflict is easy. You're going to be frustrated. How do you remain unified? You labor in love. And how do you labor in love? I think you apologize quickly and humbly. You get Canadian. You go for it. You just apologize. Didn't like that? Okay, fine. You forgive with abandon, which costs you something. Here's another one. You pray for people. And you pray for the people whom you like the least, who frustrate you the most, who offend you the most. You pray for them, not that God would make them better. <laughs> that God would bless them, that God would encourage them, that God would resolve your issues because he is the Lord of reconciliation. I was in a meeting with Zach one time uh, and he was talking to someone. I can't remember all the details. He's talking to someone who just had, felt like that unresolvable conflict with someone in the church. And they're like, I don't get it. We try and talk, and after a few words, we're just fighting again. There's no path. There's no path. And Zach said, well, then get on your knees and faithfully pray for them. And then, like, paused, I assume, for comedic effect. And he says that I'm never going to forget. He said, that's the great thing about prayer. They can't stop you. <laughs> they can't stop you. Prayer is powerful. You believe prayer works? Let us labor in love through forgiveness, through apologizing, through humility, through prayer. Paul says he is thankful also when he remembers their steadfastness of hope. Their steadfastness of hope. It is easy for us to be wrung out by the condition or state of the world. Uh, the nation, uh, the communities that we live in. It's easy to get pushed down by things that happen. 
I think the last couple of years has probably conveyed to us the truth that the prosperity and peace that we've experienced most of our lives is not a guarantee. Is that right? Like COVID kind of crept up on us. And not just COVID, but all the things surrounding COVID. You're like, oh man, life substantially changed for a lot of us. Do you, do you, remember, do you remember going to Costco and not being able to find like toilet paper? Like my whole life. I never had trouble finding this basic commodity and I can't find it. You know what I'm talking about? I remember someone bought out all the baby wipes. I went to Costco to get baby wipes. And they're like, sorry, we don't have any. I'm like, well, what do I do? And they're like, I don't know. It's like, I wanted to stand in the parking lot and find people with baby wipes and be like, you got kids? Like, prove it. <laughs> Some of you remember where you were on 9-11. How many of you remember exactly where you were when 9-11 happened? Now, some of you, amazingly, even though you're full-grown adults, are, are young enough to not remember 9-11. But it was like this shattering moment in, in American government and culture. Like, an attack happened in a capital city. And we're like, what? It changed the world. It affected the way we think about our own security and safety. It made us feel, as Americans, like we were no longer untouchable. And so, although we live in a great deal of peace and prosperity, the veneer of stability is thin. And, and back when Paul's writing, it's even thinner. <laughs> Entire cities could be burnt to the ground by the very governments that led them. A Roman occupation could come in at, at any point. A war could break out. There were no antibiotics, like a fever could just tear through a town and kill hundreds and hundreds of people. So it is easy for the Thessalonians, as they live out their life, to be pulled one way or another and knocked down by the circumstances that they encounter. But Paul is saying, I am thankful that you, Thessalonians, have a steadfastness in your hope, a hope that is derived from, or steadfastness that is derived from your hope. What is their hope? <laughs> is the answer you think? I'm going to do it one more time. What is their hope? Jesus. It is a true fact then, it is a true fact now, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, rang out from Calvary, from outside the city of Jerusalem, and has continued through the destruction of all kinds of civilizations, the rise and fall of kingdoms, wars, Plagues, pandemics. I got asked a lot in these last couple of years, is this the end of America? And I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> Makes me think back to St. Augustine, who is writing around the time that Rome has fallen. And people so closely associated Christianity with Rome at this point, they were like, well, if Rome falls, what happens to Christianity? And it's a long book. Let me summarize it for you. Augustine's answer is Christianity is going to be fine. I love America. I want it to last as long as it can. But my hope is not set on any particular government. My hope is set on Jesus. And that's the sort of hope that actually cannot be taken away. Our entire lives can radically change in ways that inconvenience us or are far worse. However, there is a steadfastness which we can derive from a hope if it's placed in the right thing. Paul's going to talk later about Jesus coming back. That's your hope. Amen? Next, Paul is thankful for their strong assurance of salvation. Their strong assurance of salvation. I want to go to verse 
uh, 4 and 5. For, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And some people immediately hear the word chosen. They think of election language, the fact that God chooses people for salvation and not others, and it stresses us out and it makes us uncomfortable and it maybe makes us question the integrity of God. I'm not really going to address that in this sermon. But I want to be clear, the Bible does teach that God chooses people. It doesn't teach that to stress us out. It teaches that to assure us, to assure you that if you are chosen by God, you are safe, that God will not lose those whom he's chosen because he's already performed the miracle of giving them a new heart. Uh, the, the analogy sometimes given when we talk about elections, like imagine there's a burning house, there's a bunch of people inside, God runs inside the house, he saves some and not others. That is a bad illustration of election. A better illustration is God walks into a graveyard where everyone is dead. And he raises some to life. It is out of God's kindness and love and mercy that he chooses some. Paul is assuring the Thessalonians, you're safe. God has chosen you. Let me give you some reasons why I believe and am sure that God has chosen you. He says the gospel came in word. The gospel came in word. Paul lists this as, as of first importance. Christianity is not a, a religion about like feelings or living a certain way, first and foremost. It's not like, like a vibe or an energy. Uh, it is very specifically a proposition. It's, it's a piece of news about what God has already done in the world and then a call to respond to what God has done. It's propositional. You actually can't be saved if you do not know what the content of the good news of Jesus Christ is. You have to hear the good news and respond to it so that you might be saved. There's a certain sense in which it's conceptual and intellectual. Paul's saying the news came to you and you heard it and you responded to it. There are all kinds of forms of weak Christianity, nominal Christianity in America, really throughout the entire world today. Where people are told something about the Bible that's not necessarily true. That they're given a place to belong without a summons to repentance. Do you guys like the music here? A little bit more. Alan's here somewhere. So do you guys like the music here? Yes. 10 out of 10, five stars. Would listen again. You guys like our child care program? Those guys work hard. I meet people all the time. Like, we came here because the, the child care is so good. I'm like, amen, I'm glad that you like child care. You like how comfortable our chairs are? Yeah, for those of you who didn't grow up in pews, you don't know. You guys have miniature thrones. It's fantastic. It's unbelievable. I want you to understand, everyone who's here, whether you've been here for 30 years or, like, this is your first week, I want you to understand, I do not want you to be one through the music. I do not want you to be one through our child care program. I do not want you to be one by the comfort of our seats. I don't even want you to be one by the welcomingness of our community. I want you to hear the gospel and your heart to be one through what God did at the cross through his son. It would be a tragedy if you could come here week after week after week and feel like everything's great but never respond to the gospel. It would be a tragedy I don't know who said this. Um, I could probably work harder and find out who did. But it's a saying, uh, what you win someone with, you win them too. Right? 
So if I win you with a good joke, I win you to a good joke. That's what's important. If I win you with a childcare program, I win you to a good childcare program. I will never win you to Christ with something besides Christ. It will never happen. Paul is thankful as he remembers that the word appeared to them. He also says that it, it came in power. Came in power. My Pentecostal homies are excited now. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. It's not going to go the way you expect. It could mean miracles. And I want to be clear. I believe miracles happen. I believe we can pray for healing and receive healing. I believe that, that we can pray that the demonic would be expelled and, and that they would be expelled. I believe that if God desires to, he can raise someone who is physically dead back to life. I believe all those things are true, and I believe they can still happen today. just want to be clear about that. However, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is the word he uses for power is really not the right word to talk about miracles accompanying the coming of the word, right? So in the New Testament, when we read Acts and, and the gospel goes out, along with the gospel, sometimes our miracles meant to testify to the truth of the gospel. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that does happen. But the sorts of words we might use would be different. We would use words like signs or healings. And in this case, uh, Paul uses the word power, and he actually uses it in, in the singular and not the plural, not powers, things that happen. More importantly, though, I actually think that if there were miracles happening when the gospel went out in Thessalonica, we would read about it. In, in the section in Acts, where we learn about Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, it doesn't say that. It says that he went to the synagogue, and he reasoned, and he convinced and persuaded very word-based understanding of what happens. I think that the power which is being talked about here is very specifically the power to save. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power to save. It is raising dead sinners who are dead, can do nothing for themselves up to life in Christ. So continue to pray for healings. Be prayed for for healings. However, the greatest miracle that has ever happened to you or could happen to you is that God gives you a new heart. There's, there's a reason why I think this is important. Uh, it's important when we consider our own evangelism. I hope that you tell people about Jesus. We're actually kind of naturally evangelists for whatever we love the most. So I hope that you tell people about Jesus. Here's the good news. When you tell people about Jesus... You don't have to be funny. You don't have to be clever. You don't really even have to be that convincing. I know that sounds strange. It's good if you're funny and clever and convincing, but it's not necessary. Uh, read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the fact that in that church, various factions have grown up around different spiritual teachers. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? Look it. I planted. Apollos watered. But what? God gave the growth. Our task in evangelism is to tell people about Jesus and trust that by God's mighty hand, some of those who are dead will be brought to life. It's easy for you to trust in that. You can just trust it. Thirdly, or uh, lastly, he says um, that it came with full conviction. Full conviction. Uh, the conviction that I believe Paul is talking about here is his own conviction. 
it makes the most sense in the way that the words are aligned. Paul's talking about the conviction that he had, because then he says, conviction for you, you yourself know, sort of the, what was made of them among you. He's saying, like, you remember what it was like, I showed up. And part of the reason that Paul's saying this is, people are like, yeah, remember Paul? He didn't mean it. He just came in, he said some nice things, he got some money from you, a little bit of fame, and he left. And Paul's saying, no, I showed up and believed what I said. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said it. One of the ways that I encounter unbelievers is in, in my role teaching at Biola. I encounter them more there than, than here, and here's why. Because parents send their kids to Biola thinking maybe four more years will do it. <laughs> so I have really, really uh, like vulnerable, authentic conversations. One time I did a lecture on the resurrection of Jesus, like some evidences for it, what it means, why it's important. And at the end, uh, a young woman came up to me, probably like, I don't know, 19 or 20, and people are milling out, and she's like, yeah, I, give that. I like that. Um, do you believe it? And I was like, what? And she's like, do you believe it? Like, do you believe that, like, Jesus, you know, came back to life? Now, just pause me for a moment. Like, you've heard Jesus came back to life over and over and over again, right? But if you went to some stranger on the outside and said, hey, I knew a guy that was dead and came back to life, they're done listening to you, <laughs> right? They were like, you're a crazy person. Like, it is a strident, radical claim to say that someone came back to life. So she's like, do you believe it? It's a great opportunity. I just want to say, yes, I believe it. I believe Jesus was crucified. I believe he was buried. I believe he was raised on the third day. I believe he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I believe that Jesus is coming back. I believe all those things. Hope Chapel, you know, I believe it. I really do believe it. Whatever else you know about me, the good and the bad, I believe in the cross of Christ and I cling to the cross of Christ because there's nothing else I really can have in this world. A powerful means by which you can encourage others is through your own conviction of the truth. Paul continues, he is thankful for their joyful pattern of proclamation. Let's read verses 6 through 8 real quickly. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul's saying, like, you, you put me out of a job. Your example was so good, I don't have to talk about Jesus anymore. You will never be promoted out of evangelists, just to be clear. Paul's speaking hyperbolically there. He's talking here about the fact that Christianity is about imitation. In the Bible, we're not really given specific methods. Sometimes we are about how to live our lives. We're instead uh, given models. Uh, we're told who to live our life like. Uh, who is our supreme example and model? A little bit better than last time. Who is our supreme example and, and model? Jesus. Jesus is. Paul says that the Thessalonians have become imitators of him and by extension the Lord, that he lived a certain way in front of them and then they begin to live that way. And as they lived that way, other people saw their conviction. They saw their righteous behavior. They saw the love they had for each other, their works of faith and all this stuff. And they begin to imitate it. Central, central to, 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 to the way we relate to each other as Christians is imitation. Like being around each other. On Sundays and, and elsewhere. I'm trying to illustrate it like, some things you have to learn by being around other people. Did you guys know that? I will never read enough theology books to become very humble. <laughs> I'm never going to learn patience through an encyclopedia. I wish I could. I can't. 
I'll try to illustrate it. Uh, imagine you were about to get surgery. And the doctor walks in and says, this is my first surgery. <laughs> You're like, all right. He's like, I just graduated. And he points to his diploma, hung on the wall, and it says YouTube University. <laughs> and you'd be like, no. Keep your knives away from me. Doctors do like residencies, is that the word? They walk around with other doctors. They see surgeries happen. They learn in person by being around more mature, seasoned, experienced doctors. Maybe you've gone in to see a doctor, and the doctor walks in and says, this is Dr. So-and-so. They're here to watch today. And you're like, I don't know. Because a doctor's not just going to watch some surgeries on YouTube and be like, yeah, I think I got it. They're going to gain experience through personally being with the people who are doing the thing that they want to learn to do. I love, uh, like, theology books. Do you guys, anyone here like theology books? A few of you. One or two of you. Okay. We'll work on that. Because any of you guys listen to, like, sermons online? Good. Yeah, run those by me. I want to make sure you listen to people that are trustworthy. I'll probably have some thoughts. You listen to, like, Christian podcasts? Some of you guys? Is that all good? You guys are not sure. You're worried. They're going to be like, it's not good. <laughs> no, I think it's good. I think it's good. Uh, however, I don't believe your character will substantially grow if you're isolated and just listening to stuff online. I think it grows. You grow in faithfulness by being around other Christians. You want to learn to be patient. Find someone who is an example of patience and be in their presence as much as you can. I say this, um, we live in this kind of unique time, or it's a unique-ish time, uh, where the way that we do church and experience, uh, you know, learning about God has become increasingly uh, devote, or uh, uh, increasingly like a distance thing. You know what I'm talking about? Um, we, we don't come to church, we live stream, and, and live streamers, I love you guys. Some of you cannot be here, so I just want to be clear. I know some of you cannot be here for one reason or another. But I want to encourage you and those in the live stream that, that church is done fundamentally whenever at all possible in person because we grow when we are around each other. One other thing. I think that, you know, the main discipleship and evangelism strategy that God has for his people is the local church. So it's, it's not uh, 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 like you know, some sort of uh, online preacher. It's, it's not uh, some sort of parachurch organization. It's not a really fun Christian concert. It's, it's not a harvest crusade. All those things might be good, but the plan God has to increase the number of those who are faithful followers of him is the local church. Amen. Not necessarily this one, but a faithful gospel-preaching local church. He also talks about joy and affliction. Joy and affliction. The word that uh, Paul uses is a word that often means like being battered around and crushed. It's the word that, that he uses when Jesus is being crushed by the crowds. He says, you experience the joy of the Holy Spirit in affliction. There's an example of that. In, in, earlier in Acts, in Acts 5, uh, the, the apostles have been preaching and talking about Jesus and they got in trouble uh, and the, the uh, ruling class of the day arrested them. 
And we read, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. And what do they do? They're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Can you go back to verse 40 for me? They said, they beat them and they said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And then they let them go. He's like, don't talk about Jesus. Like, okay. (laughs) They experienced joy in the midst of affliction. They could experience joy in the midst of affliction because their hope was set on Jesus and their joy was found in Jesus. Actually, joy in anything else may not be bad, but it won't be enough. Every joy, aside from joy found in Jesus, can, one way or another, be beaten out of you. You have something and it brings you joy, and then you lose that thing, and then you lose your joy. The experience of delight or gladness is gone because your heart was set on something else. I mean, fundamentally. I don't mean like, I, is it okay if I enjoy a good meal? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, really, where you derive your joy. If your joy is set on Jesus, you can be ground to dust and still sing praises to his name. Some of you know that to be true, even this week. You know it's true, even this week. So I want to ask you, and this is a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer me out loud. Where is your joy? I've thought about that a lot this week. Is my joy in my health? Is my joy in my kids? Is my joy in my wife? Is my joy in my my home and home life, home time? Is my joy in watching a show on Netflix even? Where do I set my joy? What do I set my heart on? Lastly, he is thankful when he remembers that they know and they wait for their returning Lord of rescue. Read verses 9 through 10 real quickly. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Throughout the entire Bible, there is this contrast between dead and speechless and wordless idols and a true and living God. Over and over in the Old Testament, you have Yahweh, the the God of Israel, pitted against some God that doesn't speak, doesn't move, doesn't do anything. And it's so painfully obvious when you're reading the Old Testament, like the Hittites are not worshiping the right God. How do you know that God doesn't do anything? But Yahweh splits a sea and sends sends bread from heaven for people to eat. And he he heals the sick and he changes the course of battles. He delivers people through ten plagues. There's all kinds of powerful things. And the gods of other nations sit silent. Paul's saying, I'm very glad, very thankful that you Thessalonians have turned from idols, and even though he doesn't say it, it's strongly implied by him calling the true God a living God, these dead idols that don't do anything. And I want to be clear, like, it would have been a temptation for the Thessalonians to go back and serve these idols. When their kid got a fever, or their business wasn't doing well, or something like that, 
it would have been a temptation to fall back in line with the thing they had always known and brought them comfort, go to the idol, offer the sacrifice, hope that this idol does something on your behalf. Never really know, but you hope. Anybody got idols in their house today? Little statues? <laughs> if you do, let's talk, okay? Tear down the altar to that idol. There's a donut shop by my house that I every once in a while go to for my kids, not for me. And you know what they have under the counter? Like a little actual idol. Do you, you guys ever seen that? Okay, I'm not trying to make fun of anyone's culture, but we want to point some out. There's this, like, you know, bronze idol of some god uh, whom I, I don't know who it is. And in front of that idol is a freshly baked donut. And the disrespectful side of me kind of wants to wait till they're looking the other way. And then take a bite of that donut and put it back. Now, I want you to hear me. Don't do that. Be super clear. I am telling you, don't do that. But let me ask you a question. If I took a bite of that donut and put it back, and they happened to walk around the counter and saw a bite of that donut, what would their first thought be? I don't think so. I, I think that they would be like, hey, don't take bites of our donuts to me. They would assume I did it. I think. I think they would assume I did it. I'd be surprised if they suddenly thought the idol did it. I think because they know, they actually know that it's speechless and dead and can't do anything. You guys with me on that? Make sense? Okay. Um, most of us, maybe, maybe even all of us, don't have statues in our house, don't have idols, right? But I do think we worship things with the same fortitude, although we know they can't actually save us, in the same way that my, my buddy at the donut shop has an idol under his counter. And here's what I mean. Um, many of us do worship money. I'm going to use money as an example. Many of us do worship money. It's what we think the most about. It's what we believe gives us the most security. It's what we're most afraid of losing. But all of us know that we could never walk into a doctor's office with a blank check and say to the doctor, I would like to live forever. How much? The doctor would say, oh, I'm sorry. You're going to die still. I can delay it. I can maybe make it a little bit less painful. I can give you medications. I can send you to a support group. But I can't stop you from dying. No amount of money can stop you from dying. No amount of sex can stop you from dying. No amount of power can stop you from dying. No amount of social cash can stop you from dying. No amount of children that you have. No matter how big your family is or how many friends you have. None of that ever could stop you from dying. None of it could bring you back to life. But, and I want to be clear, I believe this. Jesus can. Paul says that he's thankful that they've turned from dead idols to the true and living God. He's actually alive. He can actually do things. And to wait for his son, Jesus, from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, and in this last, final, incredibly intense line, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come.
for those of you who hear the wrath to come and think, I don't want to listen to this part, you need it the most. I'm going to plead with you. I want to plead with you. Paul does not say that Jesus was raised from the dead who makes us feel okay with ourselves. He does not say Jesus who raises us, or who's raised from the dead, um, who will uh, help us with our careers and our relationships. Who will help us to lead better moral lives? Who will help us with our self-esteem? Who will help us learn how to be financially responsible? He says he's the one who will deliver, or you could translate this word, rescue us from the wrath to come. The fundamental thing that Jesus does is he rescues us. Unfortunately, uh, in many sectors, Jesus is domesticated into kind of a, a religious leader that's got some thoughts for us. We kind of pick and choose what we want. That's not, that's not really uh, the, the main purpose of Jesus, not really his main goal, his main job description. Jesus, um, he actually rescues us. From a real danger. I explained to my kids, hey, don't run out of the street. And they're like, why? I'm like, because a car can kill you. And they're like, what? I'm like, a car can end you. You're done. And they're like, mine's like, they're like, well, I have a car. I get in cars all the time. I see them all the time. What do you mean a car can Yeah, it can kill you. Human beings uh, are, are sinful. Uh, it's a word for wickedness. It's a word for rebelling against God. It's a word for our state and our actions. I believe the Bible teaches that we're born sinful, but I don't even think it has to teach that necessarily because all of us here could write a list of the evil things we've done and we would want to bury it 10 feet beneath the ground. And God is holy. He is actually good. He is actually righteous. He will not stand for evil and wickedness. He's just and he will deal with sin. And one of the ways he deals with sin is through the wrath to come. That's what's so good about the good news. That we began life in a dangerous, precarious situation in which we deservedly will receive God's wrath, but God sends Jesus, who lives a perfect life in our place, who dies a death in our place, so that our sin is on him and his righteousness is on us. So at the end, when the wrath is coming and God is pulling out those who are righteous, you and I can be counted righteous not because of our own good things that we've done, but because we've called on the name of Jesus and we're judged by his righteousness. So the word is like imputed righteousness. It's given to us, declared righteous. So really the point I'm trying to make is this. If you've not called on the name of Jesus, if you've not turned in repentance and faith, if you've not acknowledged your need for a savior, you are not safe from the wrath to come. I hear uh, preachers sometimes say, I don't want you to be afraid. I do, I want you to be afraid. I want it to be a fear 
that leads to repentance. And I do think a far more meaningful and better life, but that really is not the point. I want you to be able to cling to the cross. I want you to be able to receive forgiveness for your sins freely, freely offered to you through the work of Jesus so that you might escape God's just and holy wrath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for even your just wrath. We also thank you, Father, that you have provided a way of escape. That you, for the good reasons of your love, were not content to sit by and allow the destruction of all humankind, but instead offered a way of salvation available freely to anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. We thank you for Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and the things that we can learn there. We thank you for the example of Paul and the example of many, many, many others who have faithfully obeyed and followed after your son, even those with us alive today as examples. May we as a body continue to imitate your son. Pray for those up here today who have not yet called in your name. I pray that you would Trouble their hearts such that they might be convicted of sin, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that they might be counted among the believing body. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.